Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would hear the prayers of your saints. We know that you do. We know that you do because we are in Christ, because you have redeemed us as a people. We know also that the Spirit intercedes for us um, when we don't even know what to pray for. Lord, we pray that as we are looking at Matthew 24 and 25 and talking about your future coming, Lord Jesus, we want you to come. We pray that you, Father, would send your Son, the Son of Man, in his glory to rescue his people and to judge, to judge injustice. Lord, we ask for this. Lord, help us as we attend to your word now. Give us clarity. Um, there's a lot of detailed stuff to work through today. We pray that we wouldn't get lost in the details, but we would remind us what you, Jesus, are calling us to. Perseverance, faithfulness now, as we look to the end. Lord, we ask these things, we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and we'll go ahead and do our scripture reading. So when you find your place in Matthew 24, we'll start actually in verse 3, even though we looked at that last week. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 3 through 22. And I'll explain why we're stopping at 22 in a minute. But uh, when you find your place, go ahead and stand up. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. We stand out of respect. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight might not, not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
Well, we started in last week in this final teaching section by Jesus of, of the book of Matthew, the final of five teaching sections. And the whole discourse is based or promote, prompted by this question by the disciples in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And we argued last week that really that, that idea of all things, what, what Jesus has been talking about, really reaches back to 2337. He's been talking about the house in Jerusalem being desolate, namely the temple being desolate. He's talked about his coming when, when Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talked about the destruction of the temple in 24.2. Not one stone that you see here of the buildings of the temple will be left upon another. And so the disciples kind of link all these things together and they say, well, when's these things going to happen? There's a when question, a temporal question. And then what's the sign? What's the sign of the coming and the end of the age? But really those are one event, one topic in their minds. And then I argued last week that Jesus is answering those questions in reverse order. Uh, he starts really in, chapter, in, in verse 4 by giving a bunch of signs, a bunch of markers for what things are going to look like from the time that he is talking to his disciples all the way to the end. Really what we got last week, if you think about it, was the basic outline to the end. Verse 14 ends, the end will come. But the outline that Jesus gives is kind of sketchy at this point. Yes, there are things like wars and rumors of wars, and um, uh, there's famines, there's false Christs, there's false prophets, there's apostasy, there's persecution, but it's still kind of sketchy. And what we're going to see today, starting in verse 15 and really running through verse 31, ultimately, in the this week and the next week or so, is we're seeing Jesus dip back. He's, he set out the sketch of the outline to the end, and now he's going to dip back, and he's going to focus on that final period. He's going to give more specificity on the period. So he's not talking about new developments. He's just zooming in on a portion of the outline that he's already given and describing for more of those developments. But he's, even as Jesus does this, even as Jesus does give signs to his disciples as they ask for he, does, he is doing that. He is answering their questions. The primary application is not about date setting. It's not about calendar setting. It is about perseverance. We saw that last week. To not be disturbed, to not be deceived, to persevere to the end, to preach the gospel. And so it highlights that very practical nature of talking about the end times. You live now in light of where you see history is going. You live now in light of where you see history is going. So Jesus, yes, he is going to want his disciples to be aware. He does want them to recognize markers, but more than anything, he wants them in the moment. And as they go through these things to be faithful, to be steadfast, to be good stewards, to be proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So as we continue to walk through Matthew, I wanna, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, I want to continue to remind you of that because we fall into the danger of getting um, sucked into the details and the details are there to an extent, but what you cannot lose is how Jesus wants you to act based on what he is saying. Now, one other aspect that we're going to see today as we walk through this text is that if you want to know about the end times, if you want to know how the story's going to end, you got to know your Old Testament. 
uh, that's because that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is written as a story. So just imagine for a second, right, that you are reading The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, right, and you parachute into The Return of the King, like have never read it before. You've never read The Fellowship of the Ring. You've never read The Two Towers. You just parachute in into The Return of the King, and you try to piece together everything that's kind of happened. Now, you'd be able to get some details, but you'd be missing all of the freight leading into the ending. Well, that is exactly what is happening in the scriptures. You can't expect to parachute in into the New Testament and get all the details worked out because all of those details are really rooted in the storyline of the Old Testament. We're going to see that today in particular with the book of Daniel. And just a heads up that my run through, I could only get through the first point of the sermon because we need to spend time in Daniel because that's where Jesus points us. So with that knowledge, let's go ahead and think about our big idea for the text this week and probably next week as well, and it's this. Persevere to the end by fleeing great distress, false prophets, and false Christs. Persevere to the end by fleeing great distress, false prophets, and false Christs. And what we see first in verses 15 through 22 is that first kind of aspect, flee great distress, great distress caused by abomination. Flee great distress caused by abomination. Now look at verse 15. So, now pause. That little conjunction there tells us how Jesus is progressing. Uh, it's the word for so or therefore. So what Jesus is doing is he has laid out this outline in verses 4 through 14. And now based on what he said about the outline, he's saying, okay, based on that, therefore, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what Jesus is doing is he's zooming in, and where he is zooming in on his little outline is he's zooming in at the time of the end. How do I know that? Well, watch how this progresses. I'll give you just a couple markers here. So he's going to talk about this abomination of desolation thing and this great tribulation basically through verse 22. And then he's going to talk about more about false prophets and false Christ, which he had already talked about last week in 4 through 14. So he's talking about the same realities. He's just unpacking a little bit more. But then notice verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then he talks about these cataclysmic signs, and then look at verse 31. Uh, 32 and 31. Or excuse me, 30 and 31. We'll get it right. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to another. That's Jesus coming, and that's the end of the age. So work backwards. If that's where verse 31 leaves us, and these things happen immediately after the tribulation, which is what we're talking about today and next week, then he's focusing in on the end section of that outline. He's focusing on the end section of that outline. And he's warning them about something very particular, this idea of the abomination of desolation. Now, you've probably, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that phrase, 
but you may not understand what it actually means. You just know it's something bad, right? It's something really bad. But what does it actually mean? Well, Jesus gives us a clear direction here. He's going to take us back to the book of Matthew. And there's this little interesting parenthetical phrase, let the reader understand. Now, some people say, well, that's Matthew talking, and he's actually telling the one who's audibly reading his gospel to an audience. That's how reading would have worked in those days. You don't have your own personal copy of the scriptures. You, you have someone reading the scriptures for you. Or it could be that it's talking about Jesus himself. Every other time the word for reading is mentioned in the book of Matthew, it's always Jesus saying something like, saying something like this. Have you never read? Talking to the scribes or Pharisees or the Sadducees. And so I believe in the end, it doesn't really matter because you come to the same place. But I believe what Jesus is saying is, all right, uh, the one who's reading and reading prophecy in the Old Testament and reading Daniel, you've got to do some work here. You've got to do some work to understand this idea of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And that's where we're going to spend some time. And it's going to take some time and it's, it's detailed. The scriptures are clear, but they take some work to unravel things. So we are going to take some time in Daniel. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel. And you can go ahead and stop in Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Now we've referenced Daniel 7 a bunch because Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man, which is the title that Jesus applies to himself, coming on the clouds of heaven uh, to the Ancient of Days, which we understand to be the Father. But what you need to understand, and why we're stopping off in Daniel 7 here, is you need to understand some of the structure that Daniel talks about in Daniel 7. Now, he's not only talked about this structure in Daniel 7, he's also talked about it in Daniel 2. Now, what structure am I talking about? I'm talking about a succession of four kingdoms. So if you were to read Daniel 2, uh, don't, you don't have to turn back there, but you would remember that Daniel has this dream, really Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this image, and there's a head of gold, and there's chest of silver, et cetera, et cetera. And Daniel interprets that, hey, there's these four kingdoms. And the first kingdom is Babylon. And then what we come to find out is the second kingdom is uh, Media Persia, who took over from Babylon. In fact, you see that transition in the book of Daniel. And then the third kingdom is the kingdom of Greece. We find that out. Uh, in these latter chapters uh, of Daniel as well. And then the fourth kingdom is this terrifying kingdom that's crushing everything and, uh, and everyone, and it's very fearsome. But then after that fourth kingdom, there is a stone cut out by no human hand that crushes the statue, and it grows to a mountain to fill the entire earth. Now, the same structure is reflected in Daniel 7, and you have the, uh, this time four beasts, but they represent the same kingdoms. They represent the same kingdoms. But as we recognize those four beasts, there's this, in this fourth kingdom, there is this, this, uh, this terrifying beast and this ruler who is going to, before the Son of Man comes, he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. So just for example, Daniel 7, 21, as I looked, this horn, this is the horns referring to a ruler in this fourth kingdom, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to, for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. They're under, the saints, under the rulership of the Son of Man, possessed the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, 
coming down to earth. Now, you need that structure in your mind as we begin to talk about the abomination of desolation. You're like, well, why is that? Well, let's see. The first time that phrase is used in the book of Daniel is Daniel 8, verse 13. Daniel 8, 13. Now, what you get after chapter 7 uh, in Daniel, in chapters, Daniel chapters 8 through 12, is you get reflections on those various kingdoms. So what happens in Daniel 8 is a reflection on kingdom 3. On kingdom 3. And in the midst of that, we read this, where we get a, at least a similar phrase to abomination of desolation in Daniel 8, 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And then he goes on and says something. Now, what is being referred to here is a transgression, and the transgression makes desolate. And that's the idea of the abomination of desolation in general. We'll see that as we go through. But it's the idea of something so horrific and idolatrous happening in the temple that it makes the temple and the land of Israel desolate. That's the idea. Desolate in the sense of destruction. That's the idea of the abomination of desolation. But what you need to understand about what's going on in 8.13, Daniel 8.13, is this is about kingdom three, the kingdom of Greece. You've heard about Alexander the Great and how he conquered everything. Well, after Alexander came his four generals, and one of those generals from the line of one of those four generals, which ruled over or close to the area of Israel, was a guy named Antiochus IV, about 170-ish B.C. What this guy did is he came into Israel and he said, no more worship to Yahweh, no more more reading of the Torah, no more circumcision. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to set up an altar Uh, a pagan altar in the temple, and we're going to even set up uh, an image to Zeus, and we're going to sacrifice a pig on the altar. And this is what you read about in the extra-biblical books of uh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Because what that starts is what is known as the Maccabean Revolt against this horrific abomination in the temple that caused a desolation. And what happened after the Maccabean Revolt is they reclaimed the temple, but they had to cleanse it. Because this horrific idolatry and worship had happened there. That's what Daniel 8.13 is talking about. It's talking about the kingdom of Greece, kingdom three. Now, the next time you see the phrase abomination of desolation, this is what Jesus is directing us back to. So don't forget, don't get lost in why we're in Daniel, right? Jesus directed us here. Jesus directed us here, so we need to understand this and we need to do some work. The next time you see the phrase abomination of desolation is in Daniel 9. But you need to understand the context of Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, the first, well, the majority of it, first two-thirds of it, is Daniel praying. And what Daniel is praying about is he's praying about his people. Uh, Daniel was taken in exile with his people. His people were taken into exile into Babylon. And he, he recognizes that this was prophesied about. This was discussed by the prophet Jeremiah. He references Jeremiah and he says, We understand that uh, he he recognizes that Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years, Israel's going to come back into its land. And so that's what sparks this whole prayer. But in the midst of that, notice this. In the midst of his prayer, notice this phrasing in 9, 17, and 18. Now, therefore, O our God, 
Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. You see what Daniel's doing? He's saying what Nebuchadnezzar did in coming in to Israel and destroying the temple and burning the temple and how the land of Israel and the temple sits, we're desolate. We're desolate. Now, notice what, remember, the the kingdom of Babylon is kingdom one. Notice what Daniel is saying. Uh, We got desolated from our temple um, way back in kingdom one, way back in, you know, let's just say 586 BC. So this is a reoccurring historical pattern. It's happened multiple times, this abomination of desolation idea. In fact, what you find out from, say, Jeremiah 7, or uh, Ezekiel, the early chapters of Ezekiel, is the reason God sent Nebuchadnezzar to desolate the temple and desolate the land was not only because of Israel's disobedience, because Israel put idols in the temple precincts. They put a pole to Asherah. They were sacrificing to false gods. That's abominable, and that abomination by the Jews brought desolation upon them, and Daniel reflects that. He understands that. So there's an abomination of desolation in, we'll just say 586 BC. There's an abomination of desolation in 170 BC. And then look at Daniel 9 in how Gabriel comes along and he's going to explain to Daniel about, well, when are your people going to come back from exile? When is the kingdom all going to happen? And look at Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. You see how this goes along with the temple. If the temple's there, people of God are doing good. If the temple's absent and is desolate, that's bad. That's exile. And so Gabriel is talking about, we want this, uh, there's going to be these 70 weeks and a lot of stuff's going to happen. Everlasting righteousness. Really, he's talking about the kingdom and the idea of a most holy place. Then what does Gabriel say to Daniel? Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of a word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The ESV mistranslates here, puts a period where there shouldn't be one. The idea is there's going to be these seven weeks and then these 62 weeks, 69 weeks total. And in that time frame, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt because it's desolate in the time of Daniel. It's a mess. You go to the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes along in the 440s-ish BC, and Jerusalem's still a mess. And Nehemiah comes along and rebuilds it. But the point here in Daniel 9 is that it's going to be rebuilt. And then there's going to be an anointed one who comes. Anointed one is the translation of Messiah. So this is a reference of the Messiah. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. The city's going to be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, so we got seven weeks, 62 weeks. So we got 69 weeks total at this point. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. 
So this Messiah is going to come after the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, 69 weeks total, but he's going to be cut off and have nothing. What happens after that? Now, remember the idea of the Messiah, right? The Messiah is the idea of the Messiah is he's the ruler. He's the Davidic king that's going to rule over God's kingdom on earth. So wait a minute. He's going to be cut off and have nothing. What happens after that? And the people of the prince who is to come, and the prince who is to come is that little boastful horn that we saw in Daniel 7, shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the city's going to get rebuilt only to be flattened again. And the temple's going to be flattened again. Its end, the end of the city, shall come with a flood, and to the end, the end of the age, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So what's the picture? The Messiah, the anointed one is going to come. He's going to cut off, have nothing. And then there's a people, not the prince who's to come, but the people of the prince who's to come are going to come in, level the temple, level the sanctuary. And then uh, there's going to be war and desolation in the land of Israel to the end. And then what? Verse 27. And he, this is the prince who is to come, She'll make a strong covenant with the many for one week. Here's the 70th week of our total that Gabriel gave at the beginning. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. You can only do that if you have a temple to put an end to sacrifice and offering in. So apparently there's another temple. And on the wing, abomination shall come. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So here we've got an abomination of desolation again. But this time in connection with kingdom four, even as we go on ahead in Daniel, we can see that. But what you need to see is this is a reoccurring pattern. This didn't just happen once. It's not going to, it didn't just happen once. If we look at Daniel nine, we understand that the Messiah being cut off is what Jesus talks about is his crucifixion. Jesus gets rejected. We've been seeing that in Matthew. He is rejected by his people. He is cut off. He is destroyed. He is, he's crucified. Of course, he's going to rise again, but he even said to Israel, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what's going to happen after a people is going to come a people of this little boastful horn that's mentioned in Daniel seven is going to come and it's going to wipe out the city and the sanctuary. Well, we understand that that happened in AD 70. Rome came in, and that's exactly what happened. They wiped out the city. They wiped out the sanctuary. Such that what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 2 happened. No stone of the buildings of the temple, not the platform, but the buildings of the temple was left. But did you notice something in Daniel 9, 26 and 27? In 9, 26, there's desolation based on that destruction But there's another one in 927, a different one. An abomination of desolation yet to come based on this prince who, this leader, this boastful horn who is to come. That's the outline. So that's the next place in Daniel you see the phrase abomination. But there's more. (laughs) See, I told you it was detailed. There's more. It gets mentioned again. It gets mentioned again in Daniel 11. Daniel 11, we're back to kingdom three. Remember, there's four kingdoms. One is Babylon. Two is Media Persia. Three is Greece. The fourth, evidently, is Rome. But kingdom three gets mentioned again in Daniel 11. 
up to, Daniel 11 is up to, about kingdom 3 up to verse 35. Verse 36, there's a change. But notice in Daniel 11, 31. Forces from him, this king, this, the boastful king version in kingdom 3, we understand this to be Antiochus IV in 170 BC, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So this is Antiochus again, 170 BC, slaughters a pig on a pagan altar in the temple, sets up or at least tries to set up an image of Zeus in the temple. There's that abomination of desolation. But then in verse 36, we get a switch. I can't go into all the reasons why there's a switch in verse 36, but there is to kingdom four. So Daniel reaffirms, or uh, whoever's interpreting to Daniel reaffirms there's going to be an abomination in kingdom three. But notice what happens starting in 1136. And the king, and we're to identify this as the boastful horn, the boastful leader, back in Daniel 7, back in Daniel 9. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed will be done. And so we see this guy, he's going to come along and he's going to exalt himself above every God. To the point where if you skip down to verse 45, what's he going to do? He's going to pitch his palatial tents, his royal tents. Literally, the Hebrew reads this way, or you could at least render it this way, between the seas, plural, in what land? In the land of Israel. It's clear from the context. He's talking the land of Israel. Well, what two seas do you have in the land of Israel? You have the Mediterranean and you have the Dead Sea. Right dead center, you've got, or thereabouts, you've got Jerusalem. And notice what it says. But he will shall pitch his royal tents between the seas at, that's how you could render the Hebrew, the glorious holy mountain. Yet she shall come to an end with none to help him. And the picture seems to be this guy who's exalting himself before every known God, he's going to sit in the temple in Jerusalem on the holy mountain. That's what a re reference to the temple. And he's going to do this. He's going to proclaim himself to be God. That's how Paul interprets this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. And then notice we get our final reference to the abomination of desolation in connection with this in Daniel 12, 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, which is approximately three and a half years. But in connection with kingdom four. So let's recap. Kingdom one, Nebuchadnezzar. Because the Jews set up an abomination, an idolatrous worshiping idols in the temple, God sent Nebuchadnezzar to desolate the temple and the land of Israel. So there was an abomination of desolation in kingdom one, Babylon. Fast forward to kingdom three, Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes in 170-ish BC. He sets up a pagan worship in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, slaughters a pig on the altar, tries to set up an image to Zeus. That's an abomination of desolation. The temple gets rebooted from its desolation. 
Then what's going to happen in kingdom four? Kingdom four, the Messiah is going to get cut off, have nothing. And then the Romans are going to come in and destroy the sanctuary and Jerusalem in desolation. But then after that sometime in 927, there's going to be a rebuilt temple with another abomination of desolation happening, the ultimate one, in connection with this ultimate boastful horn, somehow connected with kingdom four. Let the reader understand. Doesn't mean it's easy. It means there's a lot of work to go into it. But Jesus is clearly referring to this motif in Daniel 7. So, go back to Matthew. So, uh, let's read Matthew 24, 15 again. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So, we are to understand that's the final one, the final abomination of desolation by this boastful guy who's going to exalt himself above every unknown God. He's going to seat himself in the temple, proclaiming himself above the God Yahweh. That's an abomination that's going to cause desolation That's what Jesus is referring to. And notice what he says. When you see this, disciples, what are you supposed to do? Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out. When you see this happening in the temple, get out of Jerusalem. Just go. Go to the mountains, which is typically where... If there's trouble or distress in Israel, you can think of King David running to the mountains, right? For security, for salvation. Why? Because desolation is coming on this place. Some commentators say, well, this is AD 70. This is the destruction of the temple. That can't work. Because by the time, what would have been the abomination of desolation in AD 70? The abomination of desolation is always idolatrous worship, something you're supposed to bow down towards in the temple. Well, there's something like that in AD 70, after the Romans destroy the temple, after they burn it out, they bring the standards of their legions into the temple precincts and they bow down to them. But notice that happens after the temple's already been destroyed. By that time, you can't get out of Jerusalem. After AD 68 with Jerusalem siege, you can't get out. So Jesus must be talking about a different event. Now, it is true that in AD 68, the Christians, according to the the church historian Eusebius did leave Jerusalem because in accordance with Luke 21, 20, they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies and they left. But even what we saw in Daniel, there's two events. There's an event in Daniel 9, 26 corresponding to AD 70. And there's an event in Daniel 9, 27 corresponding to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 15. And Jesus is saying, when you see this, get out, leave. Which is kind of an odd command when you think about it, right? Sometimes we think uh, as Christians, when we see something horrific or when we see trouble coming, we're supposed to endure. I mean, didn't Jesus just say that? Persevere, endure. Jesus is saying, here's what perseverance looks like in this particular case for those who are dwelling in Judea. Get out, run away, flee. That's what he's saying. Flee to the mountains. And then in verses 17 and 18 and following, he just amplifies the urgency of this plea. Verse 17, 
let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. So houses at that time, they're flat top. They have an exterior staircase. You don't have to enter the house to go upstairs. So he's saying, you hear about this abomination of desolation happening in the temple, this idolatrous worship that's happening in the temple. Uh, Just go down, don't get anything and leave. Kind of like you imagine your house is on fire, right? You wake up in the middle and there's smoke and there's flame and there's everything. You know, some of us might try to grab a few things, but uh, if it's bad enough, you just go. You don't worry about anything else because you, you need to live. You and your family need to live. That's kind of the picture here. This thing is on fire. It's about to come down around your ears. Just go. Don't go back for anything. Same thing in verse 18. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. The idea is you go out to the field in the morning, it's cool, you start to work, you lay your cloak on the edge of the field, you're working, somehow you hear about this idolatrous worship, this evil, boastful person in the temple, you don't go back for your cloak, you just go. You just go to the hills to survive. Jesus reflects on this more, verse 19. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. He's saying, now this is the same word for woe that he was using in chapter 23, but this time it's just sadness. Like, that's going to be very unfortunate. That's going to be very unfortunate for women who are pregnant or they're nursing because they just got to go. And they're the most vulnerable with their kids. They just, they're, they're, they're nursing. Uh, they're, the kids are vulnerable. The women are vulnerable. But they've got to go. They've got to make this, this flight because it's so bad. And he even calls the disciples to prayer. Verse 20, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now, why does he say that? Well, if it's wintertime, it's wet, it's mucky, it's a mess, and you have to flee. And if you have to flee when it's cold and it's hard to travel... So pray to God that that doesn't happen. What about a Sabbath? Jesus isn't saying his disciples are keeping the Sabbath, but they're in Judea, right? This is about people in Judea, in Israel. And you hear about this, and uh, it happens on a Sabbath. We got to go. But if you're in the midst of a bunch of unbelieving Jews and you're a disciple, well, like doing work on the Sabbath is like they're going to stone you. That makes it difficult to flee, doesn't it? And all the shops are closed and the gates of the city are closed. Makes it really difficult to run away. So Jesus is like, pray. Pray that that doesn't happen. Why? Why is he saying all this stuff? To flee, to get away, uh, to be urgent about it. Verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation. This word for tribulation, it just means, it can just mean affliction or even persecution. Jesus used this in 24.9 to talk about persecution of the disciples. He's saying there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the foundation of the world until now, no, and never will be. Basically, Jesus is saying this is the worst. Now, there's been plenty of tribulation and distress of God's people, of Christians. He's saying this is going to be the worst one. This is going to be the most horrific. And so because it's going to be the most horrific, run. If you're in Judea and you see this happening, run to the, to, the, to the hills. To why? To persevere. Sometimes perseverance means running. Sometimes perseverance means running. And notice this. This is how bad it's going to be. Jesus keeps re- reflecting on this. Verse 22. And if those days, the days of this great affliction had not been cut short, 
no, no flesh would be saved. Now, what does he mean? Remember we talked about last week, he says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. And we talked about salvation in the biblical concept is making it into the kingdom. I said this last week, and it's true. There's a sense in which none of us in this room are saved yet. Now, if you've trusted Christ, for self, uh, you've trusted Christ, you've repented and believed, you have justification before God. He's delivered the verdict of the final day ahead of time, but you're not home yet. And to make it home, you need to endure. But what is he saying here? He's saying this, these days are going to be so bad that uh, if they kept on going, they ran their course, so to speak, no human being would be saved. Now, he's like, why does he say that? Well, remember what he said in 24, 4 through 14. He said, uh, persecution is going to come. Same word for affliction here. And I don't think he's just talking about persecution when he's talking about great tribulation. I think it's bigger than that, but it certainly includes persecution. But in 24, 9, he says, there's going to be persecution from all the nations because of, towards Jesus' disciples. And then what's going to happen? What did he say immediately after that? And then the pressure of affliction is going to drive out false professors. And there's going to be a lot of defection. There's going to be a lot of apostasy. And that's what he's referring to here in 22. He's saying, look, if they just ran their course, then everyone would defect. Everyone would abandon Jesus. But notice what he says, rest of verse 22. But for the sake of the elect, God's chosen people, those days will be cut short. And what we see here is the reality that all those whom God has predestined before the foundation of the world to be his, the people that he has chosen and he has given to the son to redeem and that the spirit has regenerated to repent and believe and to endure. Not one of them is going to be lost. But Jesus is saying these days are so bad that if they would have kept going on, no one, no one would make it to the end. That's how bad these days are. Now, how in the world, having gone through all of this, do we apply it? Because it's pretty clear that this is primary application of this passage is for those dwelling in Judea at this time. Like he's not saying everyone everywhere just run. He's saying, if you're in Judea and this happens, then you better get out because desolation on Jerusalem and on the rebuilt temple is coming. The urgent flight is because of the great and seemingly global. It's not just going to happen in Jerusalem. It's going to be global because he talked about no human being would be saved. Urgent flight is because of the great and seemingly global affliction that's happening. But there does seem to be a principle here of fleeing great affliction if you can avoid it. Think about Acts. So in Acts... Paul goes into a city, and he's there for a little while, and he gets stoned, right, hit with rocks. Um, hit with rocks, he's left for dead, and then what does he do? Well, his message was opposed, so I'm going to flee to the next city, which is exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do in Matthew 10. Your flight is not only for self-preservation, your flight is because you're an emissary of the gospel to take it to the next place. There's a pr principle in scripture that sometimes the best course of action, the wisest course of action is to flee, to run. 
Now, some of us, when we hear that, we're like, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. Because we grow up in a cowboy culture Christianity where it's like, I'm going to grin and bear it. I'm going to endure. I'm going to muscle myself up to do it. Well, sometimes God wants you to run. Sometimes God wants you to run. And that's a course of wisdom. Now, if you're in Judea at this time and you hear about the abomination of desolation, some guy setting himself up in the temple saying, he's God, just get out, right? God's very clear, just run. But other times when we encounter affliction or persecution as Christians, it takes wisdom to know, do I leave or not? I mean, Paul walked himself right into getting captured in Jerusalem at the end of Acts, but sometimes he ran. It takes wisdom to know but you got to have that for a category in your mind. There may come a time when it is right and good to flee from a location due to great distress or persecution. There might come a time when the, state, uh, the laws of a state are so bad and so wicked and so impossible that the gospel has been rejected so much that the right course of action is just to move. Again, that takes great wisdom, and it's not only for self-preservation, it's for the advance of the gospel. What else do we learn from this passage? A boastful leader is coming who will set himself up in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. That's where the world is headed. A world united under one person leading and directing all things, and then to exalt himself above God. That's what we mean by antichrist. Antichrist doesn't mean opposed to Christ, although that's very true. Anti uh, in the, uh, is a Greek preposition that means in place of. Because what is Jesus, the true Christ, going to do? He's going to sit in a temple in Jerusalem as the true and rightful God-man and receive worship. And this other guy is going to come along as a cheap imitation for the true Christ. Now, know that that's where the world is headed, but please don't try to look for an antichrist around every corner. Right? Sometimes this happens. We get so sucked into, again, it's kind of that calendar date setting idea. It's like, well, maybe Pope Francis is the antichrist. Well, he is to the extent that he places himself as a mediator between God and man, but not like capital A antichrist, maybe. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe it's Trump, maybe it's Biden, maybe it's Oprah. I don't know, right? Like, but that's the sort of mentality. Don't be looking for an antichrist around every corner because what is Jesus calling you to do? No matter what happens, persevere, be a faithful steward, and preach the gospel. That's what you're supposed to do. There should also be great encouragement from this because did you notice what Jesus said in verse 22 the father the father and the son are executing this judgment like the desolations on Jerusalem etc like th this is this is from ultimately from the hand of God because he's the one that's going to shorten the days right but what should be comforting to you in verse 22 is that the Father preserves his chosen people through great distress. He's not going to evacuate you so that you don't have to undergo it. He's going to allow you to endure through it and to be his and to enter the kingdom 
and to enjoy relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. In case any of you missed it, I just don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling his disciples, you got to make it to the end. And I fear, I worry about some of my brothers and sisters who hold to a pre-tribulational view that I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to be evacuated out. I'm going to be safe. And then when it comes, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to your faith? Because Jesus calls you to persevere. Persevere to the end and pray. Oh, goodness, pray. You see that in this passage. Pray for wisdom and endurance to persevere to the end. Here's another way to think about all of this. In the United States, we love comfort. We love safety. We love security. We don't like, um, we don't like encumbrance. We don't like inconvenience. And sometimes we're willing to question God at the most slight inconvenience or difficulty or pain just for being in a part of a fallen world. Friends, you gotta, you got to practice. That's a, that's a moment to practice in perseverance, because a whole lot worse is coming. Some of you have severe physical ailments, and you are exemplary in saying it hurts, it's suffering, and yet I am going to trust my good and faithful God to preserve me to the end and take me home when he's ready. That is how you practice for great tribulation. But if you find yourself buckling under just little... Yeah, bad things. I'm not saying they're not bad things, not painful things, but you just find yourself buckling or incapacitated. You better be concerned because those are, those are exercises to stretch you and grow you for persecutions, even for your faith. What about those of you, who, uh, you here today who don't know Jesus? You know, if you're alive on the earth at the time that this this guy, the Antichrist, this boastful horn, this leader comes, one of two things are going to happen. You're either part of Christ's people, and you see, oh, this is a phony imitation. This is a total phony imitation, because I know my Christ. I know my Christ, and I love my Christ. This is a phony, cheap imitation. You're going to either be in that camp, or you're going to be in the camp that's like, oh, yeah, this guy's great. He, he speaks such wisdom. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him to the ends of the earth. And if you're not a believer here, if you are not joined to the true Christ, if you have not repented, laid down arms, and stopped living your life for yourself and for sin, you're going to be swayed by the Antichrist. You're going to follow him. And you're going to oppose the people of God. And so before that happens, repent and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, that you might enter the kingdom, and that you might enjoy fellowship with the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be horrible to, to be deceived by a cheap imitation, and then to be under God's judgment, and to never experience the true thing, true fellowship, true allegiance, true joy, in bowing your knee to King Jesus as you fellowship with Father and Son and Holy Spirit forever, wouldn't that be tra a travesty? You don't have to. 
But if you're here today and you've not bowed the knee to Christ, then you need to do so. You need to lay down arms. You need to repent, turning your allegiance from sin and self, turn your whole life around, submit to King Jesus, entrust yourself to him as the one who died for his people to even bring them through great suffering, but to bring them through to himself for all eternity. You need to persevere to the end. And you need to persevere to the end by fleeing great distress false prophets, and false Christs. Let's pray. Father, we pray for endurance. We pray for a robust faith. We pray for a faithful faith. We pray for wisdom in how we live out our lives. When is it right to stay and endure suffering? And when is it right to flee? Lord, we need that wisdom. We see things in the world, and it seems like there's a spiral down more and more. Lord, we don't know the day or the hour. You say that very clearly, and yet we want to be aware and prepared. But we just want to be faithful now. Give us endurance. Give us perseverance. Help us when even the things of life that are uncomfortable, sickness, disease, pain. Lord, help us to realize that, yeah, we we don't want to just needlessly endure these things and we want to avail ourselves of the means, but we need above all faith and endurance, trusting your good fatherly care even through suffering. Help us to be that people. Lord, if there are any here today that do not know you, convict them, Holy Spirit, and draw them. Warn them and woo them into your arms. Surrender to you that they may not be deceived by the son of lawlessness who is coming, the son of destruction. You will kill that one with the breath of your mouth, and we pray for endurance. We pray that you would preserve us from the attacks of the enemy Help us to be faithful stewards during this time. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.